Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Uh, we have been in a series for the last four weeks. Today is week five, and uh, we are calling this series 23 and Me. Uh, and we are looking at one of the most famous portions of Scripture, one of the most quoted portions of Scripture, Psalms chapter 23. And as we've started out for the last couple of weeks, I would like to start out the same way today. I want to read it out. Um, but I want to do something a little bit different. We're going to throw back to church of yesterday. And I'd like us all to read the Scripture out together. Are you up for that? In fact, why don't we stand to our feet? Let's do it really old school, okay? Let's go like deep south, stand to your feet, and we're going to read the word of God. By the way, did I see Manly and Stephanie back there? Freshly married. Come on, look at you guys. Hey, is it good? So far, so good? Anything you want to talk about? Okay, good. We'll sort it out after church. All right. Psalm chapter 23. Let's throw this on the screen. One, two, three. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the Father's house forever. Amen. All right, you can sit down. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Last week, my beautiful wife preached from that fifth verse uh, that says, you prepare a table before me even in the presence of my enemies. Uh, And it brings me great joy in light of this last week's events and some asinine and some uninformed comments made by a ridiculous religious leader in the body of Christ about women um, that she preached a phenomenal message last week. And uh, if you were not here, I strongly encourage you to get on the podcast and check that out. And I just want to say I'm grateful to be a part of a church that values men and women and the anointed call of God on all of their lives. And we can receive the word of God from anybody, regardless of what sex they are. And so uh, thank you to my wife for preaching. And that's all I will say about that before I start ranting. Hallelujah. All right. Today we're going to cover the fourth verse. We're going to back up one more verse. And uh, we're going to look at this statement that David makes in the middle of this psalm where he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or as the NLT says it, even when I walk through the darkest valley. And here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about the purpose for the valley. Why we receive valleys in life. I would love to title this sermon, um, A Valley-Free Life. (laughs) Uh, I would love to title the sermon, uh, How to Never Walk Through a Valley Again. I'd love to tell you that the way it works is when you come to Jesus, all your bills are paid, your health is intact, your neighbor becomes nice, your kids start being obedient. Like, I'd love to tell you that's exactly what happens when you come to Jesus, but that would be a lie. That's not how it works. Let me just check how many have been serving Jesus for a little bit of time. And you could say, I'm intimately familiar with some valleys. I've been acquainted with some drama. I've gone through some stuff in my life. Okay, for the rest of you who didn't lift your hand, you are lying in church. Awesome. Jesus sees you. No. That's the nature of life. We, we walk through dark seasons. We walk through valleys. Sometimes life is just difficult. It's the nature of being on this planet. I was talking to a few different people. I met with a few different people from our church this last week. And they're going through some dark valleys right now. Some valleys that they don't deserve, to be honest with you. 
There's a, someone in our church right now, and I don't want to bust him out there in the room, but shy of a miracle because of some cancer that's come back into his brain. Unless Jesus heals him, he'll be standing before Jesus pretty soon. Uh, there, there's some folks in our church right now that are walking through some really difficult seasons in their marriage. And shy of a miracle, that marriage is going to end in divorce. That's a valley. There's a, a gentleman in our church who has been for a year, knocking, praying, seeking, asking God to open up a, do a door for a job here in the city so that he and his family can be a bigger part of what happens here every single week at the Father's house. And just when he thought he had a job, the door seemed to close out of nowhere on him. And here he is, 13 months in, still searching. That is a valley. And I'm sure if I, I handed this microphone around the room, and I would terrify some of you, but if we all got to share our valleys, we, we would just say, man, We've walked through some difficult stuff. But every single one of those valleys is for a purpose. There is an intention behind every valley that we walk through in this life. There's purpose for the pain. There's something developed in the darkness. There is, in fact, a vision for the valley. Come on, that's some Baptist-level alliteration right there, all right? And I want us to see that maybe a little, clear, a little more clearly today than we have before, to bring some clarity as to why you're facing what you might be walking through. So if you're going to take notes, which I strongly suggest you do, um, we're going to title this chat, Now It's Personal. Now It's Personal. See you, Paul. Good to have a good, all right, have a great day. Okay, thank you. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into the Word. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you for the confessions and the declarations we made just a couple of moments ago in worship that even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, we know that you are working on our behalf. We thank you that the promise of your word is that you cause all things to work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That you who began a, a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion. And so while we might not see the finish line right now, while we might not see the answer right now, regardless of what we're through our eyes are fixed on Jesus, and we trust you today. And Lord, I pray that for anyone in the room who is walking through a dark season, a dark valley right now, that you would do a deep work in their heart, that they would gain some clarity today about why, and that they would know that this is something that they are passing through and not something that they are stuck in. We thank you that according to that scripture, we go through the valley of the shadow of death. As Winston Churchill said, if you're walking through hell, just keep on walking. We're going to keep on walking today with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And real quick, before we jump into the word, we repent for the Warriors' performance this last week. And Jesus, we ask you we'd rescue them in their game today. Amen. Okay. Guys, it was brutal this last week. I don't know if you caught that game. Pray for our people. All right, it's rough. All right, little confession time in church. Um, how many of you have ever found yourself making an assessment, an observation uh, about somebody or something from a distance without having all the information. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good. But maybe you've been watching somebody's life on social media or you've been, you know, gazing at it from afar, Kanye West, uh, and, <laughs> sorry, too soon. Um, and you begin to make assessments or you know, observations, draw some conclusions that may or may not be accurate because you really don't have any experience with that person or with that thing. Um, we had a family over to our church a few months ago. They had just started coming uh, to the father's house. 
And uh, as we're sitting down, kind of sharing our story and hearing a little bit more about their story, uh, they were surprised to find out how our, fi- our family dynamic works. And uh, Robin and I began to explain to them that, uh, you know, we have, they knew we had this business on the side that helped kind of keep us in survival mode here out in, in the city. And uh, we were sharing with them a little bit about the responsibilities that my wife Robin carries and the responsibilities I carry and, you know, who does what around the church. And in the middle of this whole thing, as we told them that I was handling kind of the business administration side of stuff and I was handling the business and she was more the decor side of things. Uh, I could tell that the wife looked a little bit confused. And so I said, you know, what's going on? She's like, oh, I just, I just really thought this whole time that Robin was the brains behind this operation. And I'm like, I, I can see that. That makes sense. And then she said, I just assumed you just worked out all day long and then you got up there on Sundays and looked pretty and said some stuff. And I'm like, I don't know to be offended or to like be encouraged. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, but What? think you might be here today. I'm just looking around. Okay. <laughs> what happened? She made an assessment about me without actually knowing how my life worked. And I'm grateful that I, you know, give that sort of impression to her, but I do carry some weight around here. All right. I got, I got some responsibilities. And thank you, David. And we do that with a lot of things. We don't just do that with people. Have you ever heard a person without children make some observations about how they're going to raise their kids? <laughs> Always got an opinion, right? Like, Oh, when I have children, I will never spank my children. I'm just going gonna, gonna to talk to them kindly and soft words. I'm like, that's going to work out good till little Johnny throws a Lego at your face while you tell him to stop doing something. And then suddenly your tune's going to change ever so gently. You might find yourself a spanking parent. Or people have opinions about marriage and they've never been married before. You know, what marriage is going to be like. Some are terrified to get married because, you know, like they, ah, one person, the rest of my, ah, I don't know. Others, they have this like, this blissful naivete about what marriage is going to be like. Oh, it's going to be great. Every night we're just going to stare longingly into each other's eyes and we're going to talk about our feelings and just share what God's doing in our lives. It's going to be great. And the guy's just thinking, always going to be awesome every night. And then they get married, and their perspective changes a little bit. <laughs> Suddenly, it's not what they thought, and the only longing looks that are being given are those to the television screen as they watch Netflix three or four nights a week, and there's no f- chilling, no, no chicken, no cow. Like, there's none of that, you know? <laughs> what happened? They had an experience, and it, it changed their perception. You can have a concept about something, but until you experience it, it never really becomes personal. You can have a concept about how things work, about how God works, but that concept needs to shift when you've had an encounter that becomes personal. And I think that is, that is the transition we witness here in Psalms chapter 23. A transition between concept and personal. It's subtle. There's there's a very subtle verbiage shift in this psalm. But we see the writer, David, go from a place of concept about God to a personal encounter with God. Uh, let, Let me see if you can catch it. Go ahead and throw the scripture on the screen there for just a moment, Taylor. 
The Lord's my shepherd, shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't be afraid for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort. Did you see anything? Need and see. Okay, uh, let's try it like this. Go ahead and put the next one on the screen there, Taylor. Uh, no, next one, sorry. Wait for it. There we go. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his, his name's sake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. Did, did you see that? For the first couple of verses, David starts out and he's like, he, he, here's some stuff that I think God does. Here's some stuff I've read about him, I've heard about him. You know, I have this conceptual understanding about how God works. But then when we get into the second half of the scripture, the verbiage completely changes. And he begins to talk not about God, but he talks to God. He says, you do this for me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. His his language shifts. And, and what was the moment of transition? What was the thing that provoked this personal encounter with God himself? I submit to you it's the same thing that causes all of us to transition from concept to personal with Jesus. It is verse 4 when David says, even when I walk through the darkest valley. He said, when I walk through the valley, suddenly this thing became personal. Before the valley, I had a concept about God. But now that I'm walking through the valley, suddenly I know God in a new way. Suddenly I'm experiencing God in a way that I never have before. And it's become very personal for me. In fact, let me say it like this. He becomes personal in the valley. If you're taking notes, write this down. The valley turns he to you. The the valley takes you from a place of concept about God to a personal connection with God that you cannot find anywhere else. There's there's an intimacy that is forged in the crucible of a valley that can't be replaced with any other experience. You can't find it on a Sunday morning just dancing around and lifting your hands at church. You can't find it just going through some dead repetitive religion There's something that's developed in the valley because it's in the valley that the true character and the nature of Jesus is revealed to you. No longer is he just some character bound with leather pages and your Bible and you read about things that he did to other people, but suddenly this becomes your story. This becomes your experience. You will never know him as the supernatural healer unless you walk through a dark valley of sickness. You'll never know him as a supernatural provider unless you walk through a dark valley of lack. You'll never know him as the supernatural protector unless you walk through a dark valley of attack. And you will never know him as your supernatural savior until you find yourself so far down in a deep, dark ditch and you lift up your hands and say, I need some saving. 
You never get to know him for who he truly is until you walk through a season where you desperately need that God, his character, his nature to rescue you from your situation. God is far more concerned with you having a raw, gritty, honest relationship with him than some dead, lifeless religion that keeps you coming to a building every single Sunday. He wants this thing to become personal. And that only happens in the valley. That only happens when we walk through some stuff. Because without the valley, listen, all you've got is a concept. All you've got is an idea of what God can possibly, potentially do. I think conceptual Christianity is one of the greatest villains of our faith. It's subtle. It seeps into churches and kind of even seeps into teaching sometimes, but it's people pontificating ideas without actually having a true, genuine experience with God, without ever walking through some stuff. Let me tell you, I'd rather have someone who's walked through a valley of sickness pray for healing for me. I'd rather have someone who's walked through some stuff and their finances pray for my finances. Not someone who's never gone through it before. And listen, I'm not suggesting that you can't live a protected life and God will cover you from certain areas of attack. I think that's amazing. But man, when I'm going through it, I want someone who's walked through that valley before to lay hands on me and pray for me. See, conceptual Christianity, it, it, it makes these statements that are untrue because they're based on a narrative that they've never truly experienced. You've heard this stuff before. So it's like, hey, come to Jesus, man, everything's gonna be okay. It's gonna be great. This, this false doctrine that if you come to Jesus, all the bills are gonna be paid and you're never gonna be sick and everything's gonna be awesome. And like, that's just not true. Listen, let me, let me, let me be Debbie Downer for just a moment, okay? If you're here and you've bought into a faith where Jesus just comes and makes everything perfect in your life and all the valleys become mountaintops and you never have to walk through anything again, permit me to pop your religious bubble for just a moment. That God does not exist. James chapter one says, blessed are you. Enjoy it when you walk through some dark valleys because they produce some perseverance on the inside of you. Jesus said, hey, you know what? You're blessed when people reject you. When they talk trash about you, you should just count it as awesome. Like, what? That doesn't sound fun. That's the nature of this life. He said, hey, in this world, you're gonna have some trouble. There's a promise for you, huh? Get a bumper sticker with that one on it. <laughs> in this life, there will be trouble. Put that promise on your fridge. That'll give him some encouragement to you every single morning. He promised that we're gonna walk through some stuff, but he also promised he'd be with us in the midst of it. He also promised that even though we'd see trouble in this world, he has in fact overcome this world. And all of those troubles, all of those trials, all of those valleys, they serve a purpose. And that purpose is to make this thing called faith personal to you. To bring you to a place of understanding the true depth character, the nature of who God is and who he can be in the middle of your circumstance. Now, I would be remiss if I did not offer a small disclaimer here. Because, again, as we look at teachings that have been shared in the body of Christ, it's important we understand this. While God does promise that we're going to walk through some stuff, we must understand that he does not produce those valleys. Did you hear that? He did not produce that dark season. 
that you're walking through right now. He did not cause that to happen. Because there's a lot of bad teaching out there that'll tell you, you know, God's doing this. And you've heard people confess this kind of stuff before. Like, okay, God did this. I'm, I'm going through this right now because God's trying to teach me a lesson. That's, that's why I'm walking through this. He's, gonna, he's teaching me something through this. And, you know, God caused this to happen. No, no, he didn't. Oh, you know, uh, this, this uh, sickness that ended in death, uh, well, we just, you know, that was probably God because, you know, he just needed another angel in heaven. These are the things we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about what we're walking through, but they are completely untrue. Or how about this one? You know, I made some mistakes. I did some dumb stuff in my past, but this is, this is probably God's way of paying me back for those things that I did. I deserve this based on what I did. No, absolutely not. God is not the author of sickness. He's not the author of pain. He's not the author of suffering. Please, let's not attribute things to God that don't belong to him. Let's make sure we give the proper credit to where credit is due for pain and sickness and suffering and all the other depravity that we face on this planet. It did not come from God. It, in fact, came from a very demonic origin. It's not him. It's the one who wants to take you out. You have an enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy everything that God wants to do in your life. So let's not blame shift what the enemy's doing on our lives to God. It's not him. Now, yes, there is such a thing as sowing and reaping. So if you smoke for 25 years and you end up with lung cancer, it's not like, <gasps> or you drink for 25 years and your liver fails, like that's just the natural cause and effect. But that's not God. God did not do that. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. The valley is not discipline and it's not divine. It is not God's way of paying you back and it did not come from him. I had a couple of conversations this week with people in our church who, I think this is just what we do in our human condition. We try to explain and, and bring clarity to why we're facing what we're facing. And so in the midst of it, they're like, okay, this is, this is probably why I'm going through with it. I made some bad decisions in my past. And so because I made some bad decisions in my past, this is, this is God's way of, of, of remedying that and you know, forcing me to deal with that. No, 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 no. Let's put that right back in the pit of hell where it came from. That is not how God works. If that was how God works, if, if valleys were nothing more than discipline for our bad behavior, then we got a little bit of explaining to do when it comes to some scriptures in this Bible. Some characters that walk through some stuff that they did not deserve. How about Job? God's like, hey, here's my most, fi my most, my most, faithful, <laughs> my most faithful servant on all the planet. He's blameless. And what happened to Job? The enemy killed all of his kids, took away all of his fields, all of his livestock, he didn't do anything to deserve that. That wasn't punishment from God. How about the prophets in the Old Testament? They were the only righteous ones that were left among God's people. And what had happened to them? They got locked up. Some of them were killed. Why? For serving God? I'm sorry, that doesn't compute if God is disciplining the prophets for their sin. How about John the Baptist? Jesus said, no one greater has ever been born to a woman on this planet. No offense if he thought you were great. John the Baptist is greater than you. And what happened to him? He got locked in a prison cell and his head got cut off. How about Jesus? If walking through something you don't deserve is the byproduct of God's discipline, then why did Jesus have to go to a cross and endure 
a beating beyond recognition with his beard pulled out of his face, blood coming from every which way in his body. He didn't deserve that. No, the truth is, sometimes we just walk through some stuff. The truth is, sometimes things are just difficult. I'm sorry. You want a bumper sticker? Sometimes life just sucks. There's your bumper sticker, all right? Let's all get that one and put it on the car. But in the midst of everything that we're facing, we can still declare that God is good. Psalm 119, God is good and he only does good. Romans 8, 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Not all things are good and not all things are God, but God will take all things and he will cause them to work together for his good and for his glory in your life. He is in fact that good. He's not the producer of the valley, but he is the user of the valley. And to suggest anything else is to devalue the very cross on which Jesus gave his life and to suggest that what he endured was not good enough for you. Because what you're saying is, I deserve this based on my past behavior. Yeah, you deserved death, but all the justified wrath and all of the punishment for your sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross so that you would not have to deal with the penalty of your bad behavior and your shortcomings and your past and that you could live as a righteous son and daughter covered by the blood, head to toe, white as snow, free from what the, the consequences of your past might be and come before Jesus with boldness. Come before the throne and receive the grace and the mercy that God made a way for you to receive. God is not holding on to your sin, putting in his pocket so that one day he can pay you back with sickness and pay you back with lack or anything else that you might face on this planet. That is not love. That is abuse. That's not how God works. But he will take every valley and he will use it as an opportunity to make things personal, to develop something in you that can't be developed outside of that valley. Please do not waste a valley season that you walk through. Don't allow the valley to push you at a distance from God because you think that this is punishment or you think that this is discipline or you can't quite compute what's happening. No, run to Jesus in the valley and let it accomplish what it's intended to accomplish. Because listen, there is value in the valley if you will embrace it for what it is. I'm gonna invite the band to come to give the illusion that I'm done preaching, but I'm nowhere near. <laughs> because I want you to see what a valley can produce in your life if you allow it to. July 12th, 2014, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, I received a phone call from a childhood friend of mine um, that was at the hospital. About a year prior to this moment, uh, he and his wife were pregnant and they were expecting a child. And um, about halfway through the pregnancy, they were forced with the impossibly difficult decision uh, after determining from some tests that the child had some genetic abnormalities um, to either terminate or, or allow the pregnancy to, uh, to go through. And uh, they made that really difficult decision to terminate the pregnancy um, only to deal with grief and shame and regret and 
all the stuff that comes along with that afterwards. Fast forward a year later, uh, they have a healthy little baby boy on the way and he's due any day now. So when I saw on my caller ID, his name pop up, I assumed that they had had the child and I was being invited to the hospital to come celebrate with the family. That's not the call I got at all. I picked up the phone and he said, Tim, are you home? And I said, yes. He said, I need you to come over to the hospital right now. The baby's been born, but things do not look good. The doctors aren't telling us much. I need you to get here and pray with me. I said, okay. So I got my car, I raced over to the hospital, praying under my breath the whole way. And I walk into the third floor, labor and delivery. When I walk into the, uh, the, the room there, the waiting room, um, the entire family, 30 people are there. And you could just feel the hopelessness in the room. Everyone is just defeated. They have no tears left to cry. His mom comes over to me and she wraps her arms around me and she just hugs me for a couple moments and, and weeps. I'm doing my best to console. And then a nurse walks over and she says to me, um, are you the pastor? And, and I said, yeah. And she kind of did one of these to me and she's like, you're the pastor? And I, yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, it's the tattoos, whatever. She said, um, I want to take you back to your friend. Uh, mom is still in recovery. She, was, she had anesthesia and uh, she's still kind of coming to, but he's waiting back here. And so we go behind these double doors and I'm expecting to walk down the hallway to my friend and she grabs him by the arm and she stops me and she, she makes a statement that was like kryptonite to my faith. She said, do not go back there and give him false hope. She said, the baby has been dead for five minutes. Heartbeat is stopped. There's no brain activity. Please do not go back there and tell him everything's going to be okay. Just be a friend. I said, okay. So I walked down the hallway. I walk into the hospital room, dark, stale, sterile. And there's my friend on the bed, head in hands, just weeping. They hadn't yet been told what had happened. They were waiting for mom to, to wake up before they, they gave him the news. So he looked up at me and I looked at him and you could almost tell like he kind of knew what was going on. And he stood up and came over to me and we hugged for about a moment or two and said, how you doing? Dumb question to ask in that situation. He said, you know, I can't help but think, and this is where so many people's minds go. I can't help but think this is payback for what we did with the previous pregnancy. That this is God's way of just telling me we shouldn't have done that. I said, you stop right there. That is not how Jesus works. God is not punishing this child for something that you did right or wrong. We don't know. Just knock that off. Don't let your head go down that road because it, it's a dangerous place. And then I looked at him and I said, how do you want me to pray? He said, I, I wanna pray that God would rescue my baby boy. I said, okay, what's his name? He said, it's Ricky. I said, okay. So he put his arm around me and then his weight drug the two of us down to the floor on our knees and we're sitting there in this hospital room on our knees and he begins to pray in a way that only a father can pray for his son. 
just crying out to heaven. God, rescue my boy. About five minutes later, the nurse comes back in the room and she says, mom's woken up. Um, we're ready to, to talk to you guys. And he grabs him by the arm and he says, my pastor's coming with me. I said, okay. So we go into this room where mom is waiting. The doctor comes in and he begins to tell us what's taken place. But the news is a little different than I expected. He said, I'm not gonna lie to you, little Ricky's not good. He didn't have a heartbeat for about 20 minutes. There's no brain activity. And after about 20 minutes, we were able to get a very faint heartbeat. But based on the amount of time he was without brain activity, we, we don't think that he's got much of a future ahead of him. If he does in fact survive, chances of him being able to function normally are slim to none. There's a pretty good chance he's gonna be very severely handicapped if he makes it. And they begin to kind of lose it and cry in the bed. And so I looked at the doctor, I said, okay, well, what, what are the next steps? He said, well, we're, we're gonna put little Ricky in kind of a hibernated state. We're gonna keep his body temperature low and we're gonna see if we can get his brain to, to kind of restart. We take him to a hospital in Oakland and they've got some of the best specialists there and we'll see what happens, okay? That was Saturday. Sunday, they take Ricky to Oakland and they begin to work on him. Sunday afternoon, I get a phone call from my friend and they say, He's making a little bit of progress, but I'm all out of prayers. I need some scriptures. Can you give me some Bible verses to pray over my son? I said, you bet. Send him a couple of text messages and he starts praying the scriptures over his son. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Ricky starts making more progress. Eight days later, my friends put a car seat in the back seat of their SUV and they take a completely healthy a completely normal baby boy home with them. Today, this is Ricky. He's five years old. He's completely fine. He's playing baseball for the San Francisco Giants. Everything's fine. Now, God did a miracle in that little guy's life. Absolutely. You can dry your tears, okay? It's gonna be okay. <laughs> it was a happy ending. But let me tell you the greater miracle that took place in this story. Yes, God healed a child and brought him back from death. But God also healed the heart of a man and woman that had been far from him. And they did not waste the valley of the shadow of death. They allowed the valley to bring them back to a God that they had been distant from for years. No longer was he the God of their childhood that they had run away from, but he was the God that walked with them through the midst of the dark valley that they faced. No longer did they have to come up with some concept about what God was capable of doing, but they knew him personally because something was forged in them in a valley that could not be forged outside of it. And now you go to church in Vacaville, you will see my friends and little Ricky in there every single Sunday, hands lifted, worshiping Jesus. He's being raised in the house of God because they did not waste the valley season that God brought them through.
So my admonition to you this morning is this, do not waste your valley. Do not waste what you're walking through right now and allow you to push yourself away from Jesus because you don't understand it. No, see it for what it truly is. It's an invitation to get closer to Him than you ever have before. To know Him as the comforter. To know Him as the provider. To know Him as the healer. To know Him as the God that you've never known Him as before because He's the one walking through it with you. Allow Him to take your faith beyond concept so that you can say, now it's personal. Now he's my God. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.